Hello, I lost you for just a second. Hopefully you'll come back. Hello, hello. Hello. Come back. Oh dear. Let's see. Hello. Annie. Annie is a mother of three and works in early childhood education. Following the death of a close family member and also the tragic events of 9-11, Annie began experiencing PTSD and anxiety. On this episode, she discusses how she navigates her way through her mental health challenges and also offers support for other mothers who are experiencing anxiety as they help a child through a gender transition. My name is Katie Houston Davies, and this is Mental Illness and Me. My name is Annie, and I am in the field of early childhood education. I've worked um, on a campus for the last four years, and currently am working as the PBS Kids Utah Education Manager. And I have three children, 2017 and 12. Um, I used to have a daughter and two sons, and now I have three sons as my oldest is transitioning, and that's been a beautiful journey to to watch. And as a family, we love to travel. Um, I love to read and binge watch TV, and we like to bike and hike together. So that's a little about me. What got you interested in early childhood education? Well, I think I, I always knew that I wanted to teach. And so ironically, I started out, um, I was going to be do high school teaching, secondary ed. And I realized as I started working in a high school, I was the pep club advisor at Highland. And I thought to myself, oh, man, I got to get to these kids before the world breaks them. So then I started doing elementary ed. And then I was like, oh, no, I've got to get to kids before the world breaks them. So I started teaching pre-K, and I taught at um, a school for children with autism, and we integrated children with neurotypical children. And then I still saw that need of like, oh, man, the world is just so tough on children right now. And so I became an infant-toddler specialist, and through a lot of that research, I learned the importance of prenatal care specifically for mothers and women. You know, for a long time I've wanted to help children and now I'm realizing that it's more about uh, empowering mothers and empowering women to really be the that first teacher, the first life coach, the first therapist, and the first anchor in someone's life. And it made me realize, you know, that it really does all start with the women in our society to hold a lot of things together. And I think I've also seen then how that pressure can be uh, almost paralyzing in some ways. I have been talking with some friends now that I've had a baby about how tragic it is that here in the United States, there seems to be so little support for mothers postpartum. The The postpartum journey is, is so hard. It really mm-hmm. is. And it's not something that is really explainable until you've gone through it or watched somebody close to you go through it. And the, the need for su- mental support is so strong. Like, I don't know what I would have done if my mom hadn't been here and right. not everybody has a mom that can be there. Yeah. You know, so it's, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes. I actually studied in my graduate program. I studied about the differences in different countries and the countries who have more pronatal policies and pronatal laws. 
um, and pronatalism is that idea that we we support having children and having babies. And in compared to the United States, it was really eye-opening to for me because I think a lot of times we go through like the education system in the U.S. and we're always told that we are advanced and we are at the top of our game. But when you look at how other countries support families, it's so drastically different. And I was actually able to talk to a sociologist who traveled all around the world interviewing women in different countries. And unfortunately, the women in America and the mothers in America are struggling the most. And, you know, we're, we're supposed to raise kids as if we don't work and we're supposed to work as if we don't have children. And there's just constantly this balance, this, um, that, well, you know, there's that, that mother's guilt. And I think also, you know, living within patriarchal societies, it's difficult because women need to advocate for themselves and their children, but yet oftentimes we're not listened to as much as male counterparts. And it's really difficult because for someone like myself, I consider myself a feminist and I want to fight for pronatal policies and things like that here in the U.S. But it's interesting how even in like some of the feminist communities, there's still this idea of pushing really uh, pro-women issues and policies in the workplace, but not necessarily valuing the role that we have as women as mothers. And so that's something that I have really wanted to do a lot of work and research on. It's, it's been very interesting. And I see the mental and physical exhaustion and toll that our country and the lack of support has had on the family. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that obviously I was kind of clueless about until I became a mom. And Mm -hmm. until I experienced what it's like mentally, physically, emotionally after having a baby. And it's funny because you hear you read news articles about moms that have completely flipped after having a baby and done crazy things. You start to kind of get it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to judge, you know, to look at a mom and be like, how could you ever do that? Well, sometimes your brain your pregnancy brain, you literally can't even remember your own name sometimes. And women are kind of become this like, there's this heroic idea. If you put everyone else in before your own needs, um, then you're a better mom or a better woman or you're stronger or um, so there's kind of this hierarchy, even within the circle of womanhood, where, you know, those who can have six kids are better and more competent than those who only have one or two. And and I think, you know, we kind of sell each other short by not supporting each other as women. Right. Well, thanks for sharing with me a little bit about that, because that's something that has recently begun to really interest me a lot in the mental health sphere. So um, but let's get to talking a little bit about your own story with mental health. At what point in your life did you realize that there was something going on that you couldn't control with sheer willpower when Mm. it came to your mental and emotional state? So ironically, I would say it was around 9-11. I had just had my first child, who's now 20, and um, I didn't experience prenatal depression. I didn't experience postpartum depression, and he was nine months old when 9-11 happened. And I would say that that was probably one of the more life-changing experiences for me to go through as a mom because I was looking at this tragic event 
and realizing that I had just brought a child into this world and I felt anxious and I felt powerless. Um, I was able to really work through that. Okay. But then when I had got pregnant with my second son, I had extreme insomnia and prenatal depression, but I'd always only ever heard of postpartum depression. And I didn't even necessarily understand that some people have kind of the opposite. I just kind of like got through it and we all kind of suffered for that. But even, you know, right after I had delivered him, my husband looked at me and said, welcome back. You know, it was, he, he had seen such a drastic change in the minute that I had given birth, things got better. So then it took a really long time to convince myself to have a third and we struggled. And so I was already on an emotional roller coaster. And when I, so when I started experiencing prenatal depression with my third pregnancy, um, that's when I decided to get on medication. That's when I was like, you know what? I have two other kids. They don't deserve a mom that checks out for nine months. Um, and so that was really when I first started addressing it. But I think it's a little bit easier for women because we can say things like uh, it's postpartum or, you know, we can blame it on hormones. And so then there's like that, uh, you know, we're not really owning the mental health issue or kind of... Um, being able to displace the blame on something else. Uh, but then when that gets worse or, you know, life happens. And for me, it was, you know, my, I had a brother that passed away. Um, and so all of a sudden it was like my anxiety and some OCD tendencies popped up. And when you can't blame it on hormones, then you do kind of have to take a different journey to own that as part of your identity. Right. So what is your current mental health diagnosis? Tell me a little bit about that story, about how you got to where you are now. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was first diagnosed with a prenatal depression. And then there was kind of this idea of like, oh, as soon as you have the baby, you can go off medication. Um, and then because I have been in the field of early childhood education, my emphasis has been on social emotional development. And so I knew a lot about mental health. Uh, but it was always like someone else's mental health It wasn't my own. And so when I, I would say that it's pretty easy for a female who's pregnant to get treated for depression. Um, because again, we can kind of it, you don't even necessarily have to go through like the formal uh, process. And so I was given medication, but then after that, I really wanted to add in therapy. My brother had passed away unexpectedly, and we were very close. So then it was adding therapy, um, and it was involving my family more. So I'm really fortunate. I have a very, very supportive husband. And so he was supportive in going to therapy with me, and and I think that so right now I deal more with PTSD and not depression. It's more PTSD and anxiety. And so I think a lot of people like they'll try a medication or a prescription that they're given. And then if it doesn't work immediately, then they're like, Oh, medication doesn't work. I need something else. And I kind of liken it to someone going swimsuit shopping. And it's not like you try on your first swimsuit and you're like, oh, this is the one for me. <laughs> Typically, <laughs> long process. 
of kind of trying to feel comfortable in your own skin so you can enjoy the beach or the pool with your family. Um, But it's not just like a one size fits all. You have to find what works for you. And so I think there were a lot of years of trying to figure out like, do I need to deal with the depression? Do I need to deal with the anxiety? And so I would say the thing that helped the most were when I would go to my doctor Um, I do the required questionnaires for medication management. And that's when we really started to realize that the anxiety and the PTSD was much more um, life changing than depression. So we were able to really meet my needs. And I think that's something that's important for people to realize because like Bipolar medication is different than depression medication. And if you take depression medication, but you're really bipolar, there can be some really adverse side effects. And then it makes our community in general have a distrust towards those who choose or need medication to treat mental health. So I would say a lot of it was kind of my own research and study and looking at how children respond in social emotional development and then trying to internalize that and figure out what I needed. That's interesting that you say that about the medication because the couple who I just spoke with uh, prior to you, they had that experience where the husband was being treated for depression, but he had bipolar one disorder and it instigated a horrible episode for which he was hospitalized. And, you know, he just hadn't been properly diagnosed yet. And so that is very, it's it's scary and it would make somebody hesitant probably to keep trying medication because it it can be so helpful, but it can also be so harmful if not done correctly. Right. Well, and I think we also rely on doctors a lot. We get injured or we get sick and then we go to the doctor and we want that fix. But I have learned that it is about advocacy and kind of figuring out yourself. I think it takes a lot of like journaling reading. So I read a ton about signs of depression, signs of anxiety. Um, and then, you know, learning a lot more about PTSD. I was at one doctor's visit where they did the PTSD questionnaire on me. And then it kind of, it made sense because of health issues within my own family and needing to be a caregiver and deaths that had impacted my well-being. And so, uh, I think there's a lot of self-research that needs to take place. No doctor can figure it out in their 20 to 30 minute appointments with us. We have to, we have to advocate. And then I think that's where there's the divisions because we have people who don't have insurance and even with insurance, there's wait lists and it's so hard to get in. And people who are struggling with mental health, when you, when we encounter a barrier, then a lot of times we, you know, jump ship on that route. Right, right. So what does PTSD and anxiety look like on a daily basis for you? I would say I kind of fluctuate between wanting all of the information and wanting no information. So like when COVID was happening, that brought some anxiety. And so I would watch a ton of news. And then when it kind of become came too much, then I would watch zero news. And so I would say that for me, I struggle with kind of that happy medium, that consistent staying on course type of thing. With PTSD, uh, 
I get startled really easily. So it used to be really funny for my husband when I'd like, you know, have the hiccups and he would like hide and then jump out and scare me. Um, and you know, needless to say, he does not do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Good man. (laughs) Yes. Because you know, 23, 24 years ago, that was just a silly fun game. And then all of a sudden now I just startle too easily. So my kids know that, you know, if they, uh, roll the window up or down, that I'm going to have like a really big response. Um, and so at first it kind of frustrated me because I'd be really embarrassed about that. And then they'd be like, why did you jump or why does that scare you? And so I think it's also kind of educating the people around you. Um, the other thing that the other way it manifests in me is, uh, I get really overstimulated by like sights or sounds. I think I used to naturally be an extrovert and now I had kind of have to save my, my emotional energy for the things that really matter. I can't be a part of everything, um, and do everything I want to do. Because I owe it to myself and my kids to be my best self. And so I think like with medication, I always tell people, you know that you found your right medication when you feel like a better version of yourself. You shouldn't feel like someone different. You should feel like the person we all want to be when we're having those moments where we feel a little paralyzed. So I would say the startling, the need to kind of go, someone at work used to call it going dark, but I call it going into a cocoon. I kind of have to be surrounded by things and people that make me feel really comfortable, make me feel like I can be vulnerable and not get made fun of. Like even things like the radio too loud um, or, you know, the, the sun too bright. It's a little bit of a sensory thing for me because I think that natural like fight or flight or freeze um, it kind of is constantly like you, you feel it physically. So it's something that I've had to be really aware of and figure out like what turns on my fight or flight instinct. And I heard it bit said, well, the other day it said, instead of calling it a trigger, instead calling it an activator, kind of figuring out like what in me activates a little bit of a, of a panic. And for the most part, I'd say with me, it's mostly health stuff just because I've experienced a lot of death in my life. And my husband had cancer and my, uh, two of my kids have immune issues. And so even though they're fine now, like that path, that journey was, was really difficult for me. Sometimes it feels paralyzing in that I have this desire to get, get things done or, be a more functioning human and it's almost like I'm stuck in tar or you know I just like the desires there but I can't quite get there so I've had to figure out you know things like sleep and hydration uh you know drinking a lot of water helps um and then you know calm music that speaks to me helps um so just kind of figuring out like what activates that, that panic um, just so that I can do as well as I can. And I like to call it like mental health instead of mental illness, because I feel like illness focuses on the illness and health focuses. It's like more of an action word of things that we should do. Right. I really, really like what you had to say about changing the word trigger to 
what activates it. Cause I think that better explains mm-hmm. what happens when, when we do have episodes um, where we're not ourselves because of a, a mental health issue. And I think trigger is also a word that has a really negative connotation. Yeah. And so I really like that idea of saying what activates it. I, I hope that that um, resonates with somebody listening. You mentioned that when you go into your cocoon state that you need to be around people that you're safe with. And you know that if you're vulnerable, you're not going to be judged or made fun of. Have you ever felt judgment or mistreatment from others because of your mental illnesses? Yes, I think definitely. Because I think even the most well-intending good people would be able to say like, oh, I'm not going to treat someone with depression differently, or I'm not going to treat someone with anxiety differently. But some of the behaviors and reactions that can come um, and manifest themselves can be difficult to maintain positive relationships. It's difficult to recognize that like, yes, even if there's a fight between, you know, siblings or, or family members or something, they might think like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not being harsh or judgmental because of the PTSD. It's because she said X, Y, Z. But I don't think people realize that these types of things impact how we react to situations. When my oldest uh, was, who is transitioning, spent some time in uni and we learned about a phrase called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And it's been interesting to look into that. It's kind of like when someone feels judged or criticized or not fully accepted, it actually like physically hurts. And I think that was something I've always just thought, wow, why am I so sensitive? Why can't I just let things be? Why can't I just roll with things? And so to learn that there's other people that are experiencing things on more of a visceral level, again, I think it just helps people not to feel alone. Right. And I really like that you mentioned that mental health or mental illness can sometimes affect the way we react in situations. And so sometimes we may have uh, an emotional or explosive reaction to something that somebody else may not respond to the same way. And it's really important to give people the benefit of the doubt and maybe recognize that they are doing the best they can and that, you know, to separate the person from the illness. Yeah, definitely. And I think to have a really uh, thriving life and relationships when you're functioning with maybe some mental health issues, I think it really takes um, building a community of very forgiving, understanding people who are, are asking questions, like instead of just filling in the gaps and becoming offended or hurt, um, instead, like just simply responding with love. And I think that's something that I really found as a parent and watching my kids experience anxiety or depression. Um, you know, there were so many times where I was like, I just don't know what to do. I can't reach this child. And I just remember I would go into their bedrooms after they were sleeping and I just like put my hand on their leg or their arm I had to have like that physical contact and I would often say a prayer of just you know how can I meet this person's needs I love this child with every single particle of my being and then it made me realize that people love me that way 
And I need to allow people to be there for me and to accept that love rather than feeling like a burden and recognizing that other people just simply want me to feel loved. It's not about how much I get done or how successful I am or what I look like. And I think, you know, people will say like, oh my gosh, that lady's crazy. And, and, and it's, and it's wonderful when you can surround yourself with people who recognize that your reactions they aren't, they don't define who I am. They might be sparred by something that activated that anxiety and having someone that can just give you a hug and, and tell you that, that you're loved exactly as you are. I think that makes a huge difference. And I'm really lucky because I, I have that in a husband um, and in my kids. And so I think it's also important to tell your kids what you're experiencing. Maybe not all of the details, but I think as we educate our children, we're can, we can help them become more compassionate as well. Oh, I love that. And I love what you said about your kids and, and going in and, and touching their arm. And I, I feel like, like when it becomes your child that's suffering instead mm-hmm. of, you know, the neighbor kid or somebody that you're dealing with at work, then it completely changes our perspective and, brings so much more compassion. And I think a lot of the people who are not as compassionate are ones who maybe have not had a very close loved one and watched the struggle. You've shared a couple really important things that you've learned as a parent and also as someone who has suffered with your own uh, mental illnesses. But what other things have you learned that you could share with us? I would say the main thing is not giving up on treatment. I had someone once say to me, everyone should find a therapist to have in their back pocket because it's never a question of if you'll need it, but when. And so I would say the same thing with medication, you know, finding the right fit with medication and with therapy. And then there's so many things that we have control over. And I would say like, for me, it's about sleep and how tired I get Um, and also, you know, exercise and hydration. I would say that it's really difficult for us as Americans to talk about our feelings. A lot of times people say like, oh, how are you feeling today? And many people will just list their to-do list of what they've gotten done. And they don't really talk about what they're feeling. And so for a long time, I assumed that I was feeling sad. And as I started to explore the feeling of anger more, I was able to figure out a little bit more about what activates some of my symptoms and how then how can I be more reactive to those situations and build a different support group or a different um, a different type of lifestyle that works with those things. So I think it's, you know, it's about finding the right fit. It's like a puzzle. And then I would say the main thing is finding a few people and it doesn't have to be a lot but just a few people that just aren't necessarily trying to fix things, but are just unconditionally there no matter how ugly it is. We want to find people that mourn with us and comfort us, but then also celebrate and enjoy the good times. I'd like to switch gears real quick and ask you a question on a different topic, if that's okay. There are a lot of parents who experience a lot of anxiety when a child transitions because it's not something that they understand. Do you have any advice as somebody who has suffered with anxiety and also who has a child who's transitioning, what you can do to help make that situation as smooth and loving as possible for both parties? Mm. 
Yes. There is a lot of anxiety with one day, you know, your child is part of the majority population. um, And then all of a sudden the next day, there's someone who uh, is a, is a statistic of hate crimes. And so that's a really weird transition to go through. I've talked to my friends um, who are raising children and they're, they're people of color. And, you know, there's certain conversations that you have to have. You have to talk to your children in certain ways. You socialize them in a way based on, you know, uh, the experiences that they may have and probably will have. Um, but when a child either comes out as a lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender, it's very different because all of a sudden your kid went from not being part of that to being a minority group and and on the fringe. And we saw that so quickly and so much. And I think um, I can speak to this because I've handled it so poorly, not that because I've handled it so great. So I have, I've learned some good lessons. Um, I think I, my mama bear really kicked in and I wanted everyone to make sure that they expressed support and, and helped my child. And anyone who like even kind of didn't, I became so sad and upset and felt like, oh my gosh, my kid is suicidal. Just throw him a bone. Um, And I've learned uh, when he was about to come out to one side of our family, I asked my 17 year old, we were on a bike ride one day and I said, you know, how do you think the family's going to take things before our vacation? And he said something very wise at 17. I couldn't believe it. And he said, I think that they will do as well as they possibly can based on where they are right now. And that's beautiful. Yes. And it was so eye opening to me because he isn't one that waxes deep. He's just very matter of fact. And it made me realize that most of life doesn't fit into a box. Most of life is a spectrum, whether that's gender or sexuality, or mental health, or um, autism, like there's so many things that are a spectrum. And so I kind of had to get out of my mindset of making everything fit into a box, and recognizing that for the most part, people are doing their best. And like Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. And I think I wanted people to get there faster. And I have had to learn that I don't necessarily have to express every single thing or fight every single fight because I have to save my energy for my child. We have to try and be as good as we can for the people around us, but we also have to let go of that um, guilt and feeling like we're constantly disappointing people. And, you know, we have to take care of ourselves. And I think that Sometimes that comes from, you know, being around a lot of other people. And sometimes it just comes from being surrounded by the people that love us and we love and the things that make us feel comfortable. And we kind of just need to regroup. And I think COVID has kind of taught all of us that we can put our priorities where we need to. And we can reevaluate those things and fill our lives with the things that matter. And it's not just about like being happy. It's about finding more of us a sustainable and lasting peace. Yeah, that is, that is so interesting. We had a mom uh, who I interviewed who will be on this season who said that she doesn't like the phrase happiness is a choice Mm -hmm. because she feels like, especially within the context of mental illness, happiness isn't always a choice. Right. And 
And, but I like what you said about peace and her phrase that she said was hopefulness is a choice Mm. to be hopeful um, that things can get better, hopeful that you can get better, things like that. I just, I thought that was really cool. And I also like what you've added to it now, which is let's not look at happiness as much as peace because peace can be there even during times when you're not happy. So is there any advice that you would give specifically to those suffering from PTSD? I think a lot of it is in the ability to sit and reflect. I think whenever we feel discomfort, we're socialized to like hurry and get out of that discomfort. Um, And I'm starting to try and figure out how to sit in that discomfort a little bit because it's only through like sitting in it that we can examine it um, and realize what, what will help. I mean, um, and it's different for everybody. Like I remember, you know, for myself, I stopped attending church services that I had attended my whole life due to a, a lot of anxiety. And I realized that I can still have a spiritual journey outside of maybe what I had always been conditioned to think of. Like we have to put ourselves in some discomfort in order to analyze, but we don't have to continue to stay in uncomfortable situations. We have to recognize, you know, that we can take breaks from certain things, whether it's, you know, a stressful uh, course load at school or, you know, family situations that are difficult, you know, we can take breaks from those things. We don't have to just push through everything. But then at times it's good to push through and sit in discomfort to learn more about ourselves. I love that. Yeah, I think that um, at least when I was in my treatment for OCD, they discussed a lot, the idea of sitting in the unknown and not having answers, not knowing for sure if somebody hates you, or if somebody loves you, not knowing for sure if someone's going to die that you love tomorrow, or if, you know, the plate that you just touched has COVID germs on it, right? (laughs) And so you have to learn to sit in a place of the unknown and be okay with it. Yeah, I think above all, it's about loving each other and having that hope and faith, like, you know, that other person said, and recognizing that all of us are unfinished beings. And we kind of expect people to respond exactly the way we want. And that that just doesn't happen. Things don't fit nicely in a box. Uh, But, you know, I've watched my kids suffer with some things. And... I think it's about building that community and that awareness that we just simply love each other and, and it's not for how much someone can do for us. I've learned that I think about people far more than they think about me. And so I will stress, you know, like you said, do they like me? Are they judging me? Do they think of, you know, and then I realized like they probably don't even think about me. Like, why am I uh, ruminating on it? We need to be careful about how we talk about mental health. Uh, Because a lot of times our kids won't come to us if they've heard us say negative things or things that support myths about mental health. Uh, Because we never know who is around us and struggling. Um, And I think our, I think the youth, especially right now, are suffering things that we can't really comprehend what they're going through. And we have to build this community of so much more grace and so much more compassion And I think I just really want to say to those moms out there, uh, 
don't give up. Your kids love you. Your family loves you. Um, and it's about kind of opening every door and finding out what it is that you need to, to put in your toolbox. And I think to the youth out there and the kids and teens, we look around and we think everybody else has their life together, but we're just a jumble of a mess. And I think it's important to recognize that nobody has it perfect, that even if we don't know about what's going on, people are dealing with a lot of things and it might not seem as big as what someone else is dealing with, but it is as big for them. And I think we can do a lot more as adults to model that compassion and that grace for one another. And I think that's probably something that I've learned the most on this ride, both individually and watching my children and watching our society. And, you know, we just need to throw people a bone, give them the benefit of the doubt, be a soft place to fall and recognize that all of us are dealing with a lot right now. And we need to come together as a community to, to help heal one another. And rather than judgment, try and respond with a hug. I was at a mental health seminar um, for children and someone got up and was talking about their traumatic experiences as a child and she started to cry. And the medical director um, just simply walked on stage and got a chair and sat next to the speaker and held her hand. And, you know, for everyone else, it was like, oh my gosh, she's disrupting the seminar. She's just walking up there. What's she doing? And she didn't even say anything, but just that show of standing with someone and having their back as they talk about difficult things. And I think we can do better at that. For women, we can come together and create this type of society. The goal of Mental Illness and Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness and Me KT, our Facebook page, Mental Illness and Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.